Janet Forrest. Welcome to The Shelves of Yore. book based on its title alone? Have you ever just been so drawn to a book you can't resist flipping through it and finding out what's inside? Well, that's what we're going to do this week, except we're not choosing from any modern day stack of books. We are browsing the shelves of the Nantucket Athenaeum in the year 1841. Metaphorically, of course. I haven't invented a time machine or anything. Once again, I sat down with Reference Library Associate Jim Borzilleri to talk about two random books I chose from the 1841 catalog based solely on their curious titles. One selection is The History of Chivalry by George Payne Rainsford James, published in 1833. Jim will explain that while this title is simple, the man who wrote it was very complex. But first, we discuss a volume by George Stanley Faber from 1808 titled, Deep Breath, dissertation on the prophecies that have been fulfilled are now fulfilling or will hereafter be fulfilled relative to the great period of 1260 years, the papal and Mohammedan apostasies, the tyrannical reign of Antichrist, or the infidel power and the restoration of the Jews. (sighs) Let's talk a little bit about George Stanley Faber. Who was he? George Stanley Faber was born in 1773 and died in 1854. He was an Anglican theologian Uh, So he was obviously English and also a very prolific author. He was very well educated. He went to University College Oxford and by age 30, he had, besides his BA, he had also acquired an MA and an advanced degree in divinity. He was a prolific writer. His works are generally considered to be very well researched and very carefully written, but they reflect the one, you know, they tend to reflect his particular beliefs within the Anglican faith. So uh, his views were certainly not shared by everybody else in the Anglican faith, let alone the other Protestant beliefs. Throughout his lifetime, though, he was in debate with these theologians, and they were supporting and rebutting their positions. Uh, His wiki page, which is obviously a subset, cites 28 key works that he had written either in support or in rebuttal of either his positions or the positions of others. I think the one thing to also take away from him and put him in his time and place is throughout his career, he strenuously advocated the sole authority of scripture, in other words, primarily the Bible, as the rule of faith. And that is sort of what he used as the basis for his theological arguments. He uses a few terms that I hadn't heard of before, and maybe other people haven't. And one of them in particular was the day-age theory. So talk a little bit about what the day-age theory was. Sure. And this goes back to his belief that the Bible is the sole source of authority. And obviously in the Bible, there are the six days of creation. Already by the early 1800s, this was being challenged by geologists who were looking around and saying, these rocks are far older and the processes that they represent would take far longer than what the Bible's timeline would give us. How can this be? 
Faber was trying to reconcile this because, again, he believed in the uh, supremacy of the Bible. So his argument was that, yes, there were six days of creation, but those days were not a 24-hour day. They could have lasted what we might consider to be a geological age. And so that was his attempt to uh, reconcile what was clearly being discovered in science with what he believed was the truth of the biblical teachings. It's kind of a curious work to be in the Athenaeum at the time. I think, you know, this is pre-public library and a public library really is a place where we have all kinds of publications, whether the librarians working there agree with them or read them, but it kind of takes all kinds when you're a public library. This would have been a private institution at that time. So it would have been curated differently. Why do you think it was there? That's an interesting question. And just to kind of put it into context here, yes, Nantucket was at that time primarily Protestant. There were Catholics on the island, but there was no Catholic church. That wouldn't be found. St. Mary's wouldn't be founded until I think 1896. The Athenaeum, even at the time of the fire, we think had perhaps 3,000 volumes. And when you look at Faber's work, this is a very, very specific argument for a very, very narrow and specific form of the Anglican faith. So he's really, you know, it's it's really kind of deep down. And you'd expect it to see in some place that would have maybe hundreds of books on this topic, because this is not a general survey of the biblical prophecies and how they relate to modern life. This is a very special interpretation of the, it assumes everybody understands the concept of biblical prophecy and it's saying, here is my specific in, uh, interpretation of what I'm reading. It's a very close reading. I'm utilizing my training in Greek and Latin and ancient history and modern history. And I'm also gonna survey all the other theologians who have their opinions, but here's my specific opinion. So. It would make sense to appear in an ecclesiastical library, but why this book in, as far as we can tell, almost only this book on this particular topic appears in the Nantucket Athenaeum is a really good question and I don't have an answer for it. There's no guarantee that these books were checked out, right? Right. Yeah, just because it's in there doesn't mean anyone read it. But, uh, you know, again, and we're not, I think we need to be really clear, we're not criticizing the work itself. To give a more secular example, like we were joking about earlier, this is like discovering that you've got a book on repairing uh, Bentley automobiles from the 1920s. You don't have any other books on auto repair. That's the only <laughs> book you've got on auto repair. And it's like, okay, of all the books to have, why this book? And again, it's not criticizing the quality. It may be the definitive book on repairing Bentleys in 1928. Every word of it could be the absolute <laughs> truth. But what's it doing there when you've only got three, maybe 4,000 books in your entire library? That's kind of the mystery. And I, I can speculate and say perhaps there were people, uh, who, other theologians he was in agreement with who might have been members of the Quaker faith or some other faith that that might be better represented on the island, or it's possible that he was criticized by those same groups and he's just sort of there the way you might have a book by someone you don't like in your library, just so you can refer to it, or someone donated for reasons we don't understand. So it's, it's an interesting work. It's an interesting insight into, you know, what was a theological debate at the time and the viewpoints you can hold. And it is very learned. I mean, this is a long book. It's 600 pages discussing what is primarily the prophecies that are presented in the book of Daniel, a little bit of revelation and how they related to current and future events. So it's it's a fascinating book, but you know, to your point, 
why of all the books is that the one that's in the library? Cook and Beachy make a lot more sense. So we discussed it last week, but it's just sort of a curious one that showed up in the library. I'm sure there's there's a story behind it, but you know, I, at this point, I haven't been able to draw the connection. The next title that caught my eye, I think it was maybe the first title that caught my eye when you sent me the kind of pared down list, was The History of Chivalry by George Payne Rainsford James. Let's start with the man. Who is George Payne Rainsford James? Yeah, this is a case where the author is at least as interesting as the book. George Payne Rainsford James, we'll call him George James for short. Uh, He's pretty much forgotten today, but in his time, he was critically acclaimed. He was commercially successful and he was wildly prolific. He was born in 1799. He was the son of a physician in London. He, during the Napoleonic Wars, desperately wanted to go into the Navy. His father said, no, it's too dangerous. You can go into the army instead. Uh, As a result, he was wounded soon after the Battle of Waterloo. The fact that his father uh, is a doctor makes it unsurprising that he would study medicine. But as far as we can tell, he never attended university. But along the way, he developed a real love of languages, including Greek, Latin, Persian, and Arabic, although later on he would say his Arabic wasn't very good, so he didn't really count it. In 1828, he married the daughter of a prominent physician. Her name was Francis Thomas. After their marriage, uh, they lived in France, Italy, and Scotland, so he was well-traveled and they would have two children. But he always wanted to be a writer. And in 1825, he wrote his first and probably his best-known work. It was called Richelieu, A Tale of France, Richelieu being Cardinal Richelieu. But it wasn't published until 1829. But at that point, it got some very good reviews. It was quite successful, no less than uh, Walter Scott, who people may not remember today, but if you've read Ivanhoe, he wrote that. But he, at the time, was probably the most prominent English author around and, you know, also very, very successful. Scott said, you should really take up literature as a profession after he read it. And later on, he would also be encouraged by what was probably the preeminent American novelist at the time, Washington Irving. So History of Chivalry, the book itself, was written in 1830. It's a fairly early work. And the title, it's shorter than anything else we've discussed the last few podcasts, but it also is very succinct. It really just describes the manners and the customs, as well as the political events that were going on during the time of the Crusades, up until the destruction of the Order of the Knights Templar, which is when most people say that's when the age of chivalry ended and began the rise of the nation state. Well, and I think what caught my eye about the title alone is in modern days, when I think of chivalry, you think of gentlemen. You think, oh, mm-hmm. that that man helped me with my bags. I guess I hadn't given that much thought to how he might define it, but I do have an excerpt from his book. It's from the opening, the introduction. And he writes, when I speak of chivalry, I mean a military institution prompted by enthusiastic benevolence, sanctioned by religion, and combined with religious ceremonies, the purpose of which was to protect the weak from the oppression of the powerful and to defend the right cause against the wrong. So he really does lay out his definition of chivalry and how it's connected with religion and it's how it's a whole culture. Why do you think he wanted to write about chivalry? I think it was a topic that interested him. It was still something that was still discussed and emulated even at the time. This is the 1830s. Uh, There was still a sense that even if you were in the military, there was chivalrous behavior and unchivalrous behavior. It was obviously being tested 
you know, certainly when you look at some of the colonial wars, some of the actions were fairly brutal, but there was still the idea of fighting honorably, fighting as a gentleman. You know, the English aristocracy is, is being challenged at this point, but they're still very much in control. So this was kind of embedded into the culture. And I think they looked back to the age of chivalry as they saw it as being this kind of golden age when people were perhaps a little nobler, a little kinder, and a little a little more selfless than they sort of felt themselves being, because this is also the period of the Industrial Revolution, where suddenly the economy is being turned inside out, society is being turned inside out. And you sort of see this, this larger part of almost a Gothic or historic revival where people are kind of looking back to this period that you know, we know now is very, very different, but they sort of saw it as being this slightly better age. And the other thing that's kind of funny to me is he writes about chivalry and he also wrote what is called romance novels, but they Mm -hmm. weren't romance novels in the way you would see, you know, Fabio Bearchested on the cover. What were the romance novels that he was writing? Romance novels were really a form of fiction that were what we would now call adventure mystery. This was before things had segmented into very distinct categories, including what we think of as romance novels today, but you've also got science fiction, you've got fantasy, things other than a very serious, somber view of the world would be considered a romance. It might be an adventure book. It would be something you read to sort of get a sense of a different time and place, as opposed to, you know, a very somber kind of work. Those were around, but they weren't quite as popular. He wrote a ton of novels and and they weren't simple beach reads. They were pretty, they were thick, long books, right? Oh, he was writing doorstops and he was very, very prolific. He had about a 30 year run. And during that time, on a given year, he would produce one novel, at least one novel. And those would have probably two or three separate volumes. So this is someone who's knocking out the Lord of the Rings every year. We sometimes look to Stephen King as a very, very prolific writer. And I think I think George would probably give him a run for his money. I think total he wrote, and let's see, I've got the statistic here. I think he wrote 61 titles of fiction, totaling 158 volumes. And forget laptops, they didn't even have typewriters back then. So talk about his writing process. Well, the secret is he didn't write, he dictated. Once he had a little bit of money, his secret technique was he would have someone who would be writing everything down and correcting for him as as they went along. And it said that he wouldn't actually read what was going on and you know the, until the final edit when he actually received the galleys back from the printer and then he would actually sit down and read what he had written and make corrections which is just unimaginable to me i think you said earlier he you know would have had whoever he's dictating to have it read it back but still that's a lot of visualizing that's a lot of really remembering what it is you put on the page and trying to piece it all together especially if you're writing six seven eight hundred pages Oh, yeah. And, you know, one of one of the reasons he's not remembered today, even though he wrote so much and he did have critical acclaim at the time is he kind of fell into certain what we might call tropes or habits. In later years, he'd be parodied for what they would describe him as, as the two men on the landscape, because he would have two men on horseback at the beginning of almost every novel. And it would be like, as the sun rose slowly over the Moorish plain, the two men on horseback stood and trod back to their tents or something like that. And that just became one of his little fallbacks. And at one point he did say, well, what's wrong with sort of, you know, imitating yourself if you're successful and this is what people want. But the problem is when you have that many books, I think even if people view them in a very favorable light, after a while that kind of diminishes you, you're almost better off writing five books 
and have those be acclaimed individually than write this legion of books. And suddenly you kind of fade into the landscape. Going back to the volume we were talking about that was in the collection, The History of Chivalry, that was nonfiction. So he had written, I think, maybe four or five novels and then jumped over to nonfiction and he would jump jump back and forth. So this was his first nonfiction mm-hmm. volume. And I don't know, what would it have been like to jump back and forth? Like how would people have perceived him as someone who writes both novels and nonfiction, which I think even now is a little bit unusual. It's a little unusual, but at the time it was common. And again, he saw himself as a disciple of Walter Scott and Walter Scott was constantly doing the same thing. He would, you know, he would do his research and then write an historical novel. And then because he had all this research, he'd then write a history book. But I think the distinction we have to make with both of them is they're not historians per se. They're not following a rigorous form of training and practice and methodology. It's just that they've learned an awful lot about knights or you know, in George's case, to be able to write about Cardinal Richelieu, he had to learn an awful lot about a, about the court of the French kings at the time. So if you've got all that information, why not just turn it around and say, here's what I've read and put it together, which is not to diminish the age of chivalry. I mean, he's not just mechanically repeating everything he's heard. He does go in and he does critique the quality of the sources. And he's very clear that this particular chronicle is perhaps not totally accurate. This one is more accurate. This person somehow miraculously seems to be talking about his role at the expense of everybody else. He's not just mechanically repeating everything, but it's not the kind of rigor we would expect from a modern historical writing. He's no Nat Philbrook. No, no. Nat's got nothing to worry about. Nat's reputation is safe for this guy. I'm going to ask what I've been asking all along. It's not in our collection, but I did manage to find a copy of this book online in electric form. Uh What value does it have today for a modern reader? Well, first, as a shameless plug, I think it's out on Hoopla where you can find it. Feel free to use your Athenaeum card to to find the electronic version. But yeah, it is out. I think it's out in Google Docs as well. In terms of modern value, well, he's not a bad writer. And it's an interesting insight into the sources that he had available to him at the time, seen through the lens of someone who was born. And, you know, he did see combat. So he understands war. He understands what it can do. He was wounded. So he's got that as his advantage as well. In fact, there's one story that years later, he meets the Duke of Wellington, who obviously had fought at Waterloo as well. And Wellington said in passing, I hear you were at Waterloo. And George says, no, I'm sorry. I'm afraid I missed it. And he says, well, it's a good thing you missed it. If you hadn't missed it, you'd probably be dead. So he understood what combat meant. He understood what war meant. And I think this gave him an insight that perhaps someone who is just reading scholarly works and trying to put a history together might not have. So there is that value as well, but it's still very, very much of its time and place. These books by Faber and James are just two titles among hundreds in the catalog. Looking through the list of volumes, I couldn't help but notice that book titles were once very, shall we say, verbose. Sure, there were snappy titles like The History of Chivalry and Democracy in America, but many titles were practically books in and of themselves. Newtonian system of philosophy explained by familiar objects in an A new, authentic, and complete collection of voyages round the world, undertaken and performed by royal authority. Universal History Americanized, or... 
A historical view of the world from the earliest records to the year 1808. Narrative of a voyage to the Pacific and Bering Strait to cooperate with the polar expeditions performed in His Majesty's ship Blossom under the command of Captain F.W. Beachy, making new discoveries in geography, navigation, astronomy, etc., in the southern and northern hemispheres, etc., etc., etc. Why were the titles so long? It was part of the sales effort because sometimes someone might go into a bookstore and today we hear about books from obviously the internet. We might hear the author interviewed. There are book tours. There are just so many ways to get the information out. And while they had some ways of advertising, you might put something in a newspaper or a magazine. Sometimes the book had to sell itself. So if you're walking into a bookstore cold You've got these 10 books. They've got the 10 or 15 seconds it's going to take you to read the title to decide what's going on. And that's number one. Number two, they didn't have color printing. I mean, think of all the ways a book attracts us today. Oh, it's got this cover. Oh, it's got a cover that's very close to these other 25 books that I like. You know, it almost tells you what kind of book it is just by the style, by the by the shape, by what it's surrounded by. What are the photographs? They didn't have as much of that available at the time. They had some rough equivalents, but really one thing they could do is put as much good information as they could or sales information as they could right on that title page. This has been a production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was written, narrated, and edited by me, Janet Forrest. Special thanks to Jim Borzilleri, for sharing his research, knowledge, and charming radio voice. Please check the show notes for more information and a link to read The History of Chivalry by George James. The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We would love for you to stop by. Join me next week to see what else you can find on the shelves of yore.